0: Welcome to another episode of the in the gap podcast i'm jason tabris on this episode i've got dan good talking about his book playing through the pain ken caminiti and the steroids confession that changed baseball forever publishers weekly said it's a must read for baseball fans i agree uh it's a great book uh it's a really interesting book it's a really sad book caminiti lived a life struggled a lot off the field from drug addiction Spent some time in prison, was an admitted, unrepentant steroid user, died at 41 from drug abuse. But on the field, he was the guy who dove all over the place to try and catch any ball that came near him, had a rocket for an arm, won an MVP award, played for the Astros, the Padres, spent a little bit of time with the Braves and the Rangers at the end of his career. So it's a fascinating career, it's a fascinating life, and Dan really does a great job of telling the whole story about Cam life. We talk about Caminetti, we talk about baseball and baseball culture, steroid culture in baseball, the 98 home run chase with McGuire and Sosa and reporters not wanting to press too hard on that narrative, as well as some of the hypocrisy that we're seeing with the writers in the Hall of Fame around admitted or supposed steroid users. We did not get a chance to talk about the Fernando Tatis PED test because that happened after we recorded, but it's a super relevant conversation to baseball from the 90s to where it is right now. Let's get it started. I did not realize the depths of how sad this story is, uh, until, you know, digging into the book and, and doing some more research and, and remember rereading, I'm sure I read them back in the day, uh, but rereading some of the misadventures of, of Ken Kennedy's life. I guess like first question is why subject yourself to being, because it takes, how long did it take you to write this? 10 years. 10 years, 10 years. Wow. And that's nights, that's weekends.
1: Yeah. So I had been working overnights. Uh, the, at the time I started this, I was working graveyard shift and I would spend my days calling people, doing research, um, kind of just found myself um, with a lot of time to kill and um, was just drawn to his story. What is it about the story that just drew you up? There were so many things, so many unanswered questions as a baseball fan. Uh, you looked at how his life and his career and his story ended and it was just so sad and tragic and I felt like there was so much more there and for him to come out and talk about steroids for him to die suddenly and tragically uh there was just so much to his story that as a fan it spoke to me and it bothered me and it didn't make sense and I just really wanted to learn more and as a journalist you know you really dive into these stories you you find stories that hook you and For me, it just it just hooked me as a baseball fan of the 90s. I loved the way he played and I loved his style of play and I loved his honesty and openness. And, you know, for him to die so tragically, it just felt like there needed to be a book about him. I wanted to read a book about him. Uh, No one else was writing one. And I just decided to start calling people eventually.
0: Yeah, that's just to speak to the cruel poetry of it and you really you you lay it out pretty, you know, nakedly right at the start of the of the book um is he died very close to the the site of, you know, the 98 World Series and, and Bronx and and uh and just a very sad uh story of, of an overdose and you said that you wanted to make sense of it all. 350 60 some odd pages 10 years did did you make sense of it for yourself?
1: I think as much as I felt like I could have, you know, there's obviously, you know, years pass, people don't want to talk, there's walls put up, uh, you do as much as you can to bring those walls down and and put everything together. I think I got as close as I could have, um, given the opportunities and material I had. And, you know, I'm really proud of the things I uncovered, the things I connected, the things I realized, you know, and the appreciation and respect I still have for him. You know, I think a lot of times when people take on a project like this, you you grow tired of the person, you spend so much time with them, even though Ken Kaminade is not here and he's not here with me, like, you know, you spend so much time walking around with his story in your mind. And uh, I, I just, I, I still remain engrossed by him. And, um, you know, there's, I feel like there's pieces of his story that I'm never going to fully know, just because there was so much of his life that was spent in the shadows, Um, But I also think that it it was really special for me to talk to people who could help me fill in some gaps, connect some dots, make sense of things, because, you know, once you start piecing it together just from the public knowledge of him, you know, during his life, none of it makes any sense.
0: Do you get protective of a subject after spending this much time, specifically with regard to how other people talk about him or or if someone dismisses his life or, or, you know. Is there is that level uh, there or or is there the journalistic separation in in full effect keeping you at a distance?
1: It's a really good question. I think ultimately there is a protectiveness there. Um, You know, I see I see the post. I see people on social media. You know, every time his name comes up, steroids, cheater, cocaine, like it's this impulse that people want to just drag him. And it's like this guy was somebody special, he was somebody important. he obviously had problems, he had problems that a lot of other people have too, and I think there's some compassion and sympathy needed there, you know obviously, he made decisions for himself that led him down some really dark paths and ultimately um you know brought his life to a very short end. but uh I think it's important not to lose sight of the good of him, and I am protective you know i I think there's you try to maintain that journalistic balance, that distance, um, but when you spend so much time on a project and it's so personal and um, you, know, you connect to it in this way, it's really tough to, to not pick a side.
0: What has the response been from people who knew him, people that you talked to, or even people that you didn't talk to, um, feedback on, on his life and how you kind of presented it with the book?
1: I think it's mostly been positive. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, his his high school friends have been reaching out to me uh, here and there, letting me know, just thanking me for bringing his story forward and keeping it alive. And, you know, I think certain people, you know, might have concerns about the depths and the levels of um, his story that I went to. Um, But at the same time, I think it's been mostly positive. Um, You know, you're always going to have people whenever you write about people. Everybody's worried about how they look, how they're portrayed, how their relatives are portrayed. And that's a tough balance. But uh, in general, I I think it's been a pretty positive response. I am curious about you mentioned uh, reaching out to people,
0: people putting up walls. There's already a pre-installed wall, it would seem, with baseball players. There's a sort of wall of silence. I know you did talk to some players with this. Um, How do you kind of get past that and and push uh, into getting meaningful quotes from from baseball players are going to be naturally protective, not just because it's, you know, brethren, but also because of, you know, that third rail, you know, topic of steroids.
1: Exactly. The the way I was able to get around it, because I can't just come out and ask every player, hey, did you use steroids? Like, obviously, that's a non-starter. The way that I got around it was by asking them, what was your feeling when ken came forward in 2002 and talked about steroids basically using ken's admission as an open door entryway to ask about it in a way that was uh, not focused on them but focused on the conversation focused on ken's disclosure and using that as a way in to talk about steroids and, and you know, it was a really delicate balance because there were certainly players who did not want to talk to me at all. And I think that was probably a big reason why. And then there was other players who, uh, when I asked those questions, kind of sidestepped them. A lot of them would say, oh, I didn't use it. But obviously other players did. You know, I'm glad I I played cleanly. And there were a lot of players who did play cleanly back then. But there was a lot of players who tested those boundaries, who used steroids. You know, there were even players that I talked to who had, you know, been mentioned in the Mitchell report or use PEDs of some kind, you know, and I think it opens the door that way where um, it's ultimately I felt a, um, I think I went in with a judgment in mind of, you know, steroid using players cheating of you know pushing those boundaries of looking down on steroid using players and the more I talked to people and the more I got a a more nuanced perspective on it it really forced me to look at it differently that um, a lot of these players that used weren't using it to try to break records they were trying to stay on a team they were trying to uh, maintain their level of play they were trying to get that last contract I even look at Ken in this case you know he was in his thirties, by the time he started using steroids, he was on the downslide, he was on the decline, he was facing the possibility of missing an entire season because of a torn, torn rotator cuff. You know, and it really, when you put it into that context of, these players are trying to capture something that they've lost. You know, this is the fountain of youth for them. It it really makes a lot more sense. But, um, you know, I really approached it. I tried to approach it without judgment because each player is going to have to make that decision for themselves back then of whether they used or not. And it was really meaningful to be able to have that conversation because ultimately when you just come out and ask them about steroids, it's a shutdown. It's I don't want to talk about this or this isn't, you know, anything i'm interested in discussing but when you talk about ken within that context they're forced to answer and i it was meaningful for me to be able to have those conversations um through the topic of ken's disclosure and and opening it up to bigger things
0: and again i was reading rereading back uh the the article uh, with with Tom Verducci in SI showed no remorse. Really, he made tons of mistakes, but in his life, but steroids weren't one of them. That's a that's a that's a a, a shocking admission back in two thousand two, wasn't it?
1: Shocking. It was huge. I mean, you know, it was leading CNN. It was a massive thing, and it really opened the lid on this whole topic because we had all seen all these home runs, all these home run records happening. You know, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. And, you know, you get to a point where you want to believe it. And it was so much fun to watch. But then you get to the point, you step back a little bit and you're like, is this really happening? You know, you have two players over the course of 100 plus seasons in baseball that hit 60 home runs in the season and Ruth and Maris. And then you have all these records falling in the span of three or four years. Like something's wrong here. Uh, Something is really massively wrong. And then you had Jose Canseco coming uh, to talk to Jim Rome in May of 2002 and talking about how 85% of players are using steroids and he had next the grind he was promoting his book he wasn't specifically coming out and admitting to his own use but just saying this is a problem you really needed somebody with credibility to come forward and admit to it and and show no remorse and ken was that guy and for him to come forward and say i did this i don't regret it i used it to win the mvp award like that was massive that was a massive thing and it forced baseball to have to do something which they didn't want to do you know you had Washington and uh John McCain like weighing in and and really looking to um you know to make an issue out of this you had baseball and the players association finally agreeing to this you know um Uh, testing process for 2003, you know, even if it was a blind test and they had to hit a certain threshold, like there was something up to that point, there was no testing. There was no effort for testing. You had a couple players like Rick Helling, who had, you know, voiced displeasure uh, to baseball within baseball circles, but no one was paying attention to it. No one cared. You know, it really just opened the door and it changed everything. I really think it did because otherwise baseball could have just continued this charade and made like everything was great and uh, just continued on.
0: It's amazing because like I remember the era You remember the excitement, like you were mentioning with Sosa and McGuire and the home run chase and everything there, especially coming off the strike in 94. And you remember all of it. You remember watching it. And you think back and it's like, well, none of that really feels surprising. Like, I feel like we knew. We didn't know because, again, like you said, the headlines leading CNN, how much shock there was. It's almost like we were in a dream that we just got, like, shaken out of. It really is a a remarkable chapter in in the game's history. Is it is it one that uh, I I know? Obviously, again, you say Major League Baseball didn't want to do anything then. They certainly don't want to do anything now, as far as or the culture of Major League Baseball certainly doesn't want to do anything as far as recognizing the the players that were great, even if there is an asterisk uh, from that era. What is your take on baseball's sort of uh, acceptance of that part of its history or lack thereof?
1: It's kind of a it's kind of a shame and it's kind of a strange. Approach to it. I look at the Hall of Fame voting, and you now have you know more than fifty players from the steroids era, we'll say nineteen eighty eight through two thousand five, who are in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds is not one of them. Mark McGuire is not one of them. Roger Clemens is not one of them. You know, you now have a player in David Ortiz who failed a drug test in two thousand three, who's in the Hall of Fame. You know, at the beginning of um, their uh, Hall of Fame candidacy. The idea was you can't elect any steroids players in the Hall of Fame. Uh, so these guys have been on the outside and they changed the rules and shortened the timeline for them to get in. And now we still have, we have so many players from that era. It's impossible for me to think that none of them had used steroids at some point. We just don't know. You know, we don't know about Nolan Ryan. We don't know about all these other players. And I love Nolan Ryan. So I'm just throwing him out there as a hypothetical, but Cal Ripken Jr. Like there's so many players that we just don't know about, and then we're you know punishing the three or four that we feel definitively about. You know, there's even players who have faced steroids whispers, and the voters have voted them in. So it's it's a really weird thing where um you know we've we've kind of just uh, kind of taken this approach of you know we're punishing the best, and uh, Bud Selig's in the Hall of Fame. You know, this guy oversaw this entire period. Uh, has faced no repercussions. You know, his plaque in the uh, the gallery for the Hall of Fame, it doesn't even mention that they uh, pushed forward testing during his tenure. You know, you would think that steroids testing would be a pretty big deal for his legacy. Even that isn't listed on his, his plaque in Cooperstown. There's nothing that even reflects the fact that he was commissioner during the steroids era. So it's it's just all very strange to me. And I think ultimately we have to look at players from that era, compared to the era in which they played, you know, was Barry Bonds great in the steroids era? Yes. Was he great for all time? Yes. You know, it's really tough to judge and say, you know, this person deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, even though we don't know. And then this other person doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because of the suspicions they faced. Um, I just think we need to reconcile the fact that this happened. Um, that it's not worth punishing one or two or three players because of what they did or didn't put into their bodies and just admit that it happened and, you know, recognize that it's a part of baseball history in the same way that the Black Sox scandal is a part of history in the same way that um, the the color line is a is a part of baseball history I mean you, when you look at players from the early 1900s there's an asterisk there too they didn't play against black players you know there's always these little asterisks Roger Maris you know he, he broke the home run record in a 162 game season so it's different you know there's all these little uh, comparison points and um, detractions for each era and obviously this era there was rampant uh pd use throughout the game um but i don't think it should completely undermine or diminish the statistics and success that some of the players had it's interesting
0: because like you mentioned greenies amphetamines things like that other permissible yeah. uh drugs that people look the other way you know you hear so many yeah. stories about players talking about there were fish bowls full of like yeah. you know, pills essentially at uppers uh yeah. so that's that's fine uh it's it's just a very interesting thing i i honestly i move back and forth on it i used to be hard line on it uh mm-hmm. and and now i'm kind of sort of it is what it is and you have to, you have to acknowledge the history Yeah, mention it on the plaques but you know by all means or mention it you know it, it it should it's a mark in the game that should be recognized but these players and also with certain players i mean Maguire, i don't know i don't think Maguire was a hall of famer Regardless, like Maris isn't in either. So I don't, you know, it's kind of a similar thing. It's like he had a great moment. He was a great, you know, prodigious hitter, but I just, you know, not an all round guy. Uh, But Bonds was great when he was, you know, a a little guy uh, (laughs) comparatively. Uh, it's funny though. The body thing is funny because like you mentioned Nolan Ryan and Cal Ripken and it's like, no, I think we can, it's funny how you kind of like you look at players and the physicality of them. And it's like, when you say that, I'm like, no, nah, there's no way. First of all, Cal Ripken looked like he sold Amway. Uh, and, uh, Nolan Ryan, I just watched the, uh, the Bradley Jackson documentary. I don't know if, I don't know if you've seen that yet. I need to see it. Is it's it like, good? It's really good. Nolan, I remember watching Nolan Ryan as a kid, cut-ins in Sports Center when he's throwing a no-hitter against the Blue Jays when he's 44 years old. But you compare guys who, like, have been out of the Mitchell Report who are in their 40s throwing, and then you look at Nolan Ryan, and I swear to God, he sounded like he had all the pain that he'd ever suffered in his life with every pitch. Like, you could just, like, almost like a tennis kind of grunt is, you just, even if he didn't let it out, you could feel inside that he was... So it's like Nolan Ryan looked like he was 65 years old when he was pitching in 1992, not quite Charlie Huff-esque, but in in the same uh, ballpark. But again, it's funny, yeah. you know, the, the physicality sort of changes the thing. Um, I don't remember, was anyone shocked when Ken, like about, specifically about Ken Caminiti, or was that one of those where, because he, obviously he could transform his body. Uh, I just remember him being just this, like, I mean, for lack of a better term, built like a brick shithouse, like really just this like svelte upper body, obviously arm like a cannon. Yeah. Um, but were people surprised when really with regard to him specifically, not just the the tone of, of his like kind of defiance over it, um, but just in general?
1: I think it was one of those things where you looked at it and you said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, because you look at the pictures, you look at how his body evolved. You know, he was kind of thin. He was stocky, but he was thin when he came up with the Astros, mm-hmm. and you look at him from his first couple seasons with the Padres, 95, 96, 97, and he starts to get ripped. You know, there was a series where they were playing in Hawaii against the Cardinals in early 97, and he was taking infield without a shirt on, and this guy was ripped, and you're like, wow, this is something. And, uh, you know, and then the last couple of seasons when he was playing back in Houston and then with the Rangers and the Braves, he was just big. He was burly. Mm-hmm. Uh, his body type changed. His body shape changed. Um, and you could tell in those later years that he was just carrying a little more weight than he had before. And obviously some of that is, you know, getting older, but he just, he looked different. And, um, you know, I think I think for a lot of people when he did come forward and say, I used, It was kind of, yeah, uh, you know, I could see that. And obviously, you know, given all the drugs, given all the struggles he'd faced, it's just a logical progression. You know, you're obviously going to take things to help you, if you can, to stay on the field and uh, to build muscle. And he obviously did. So I don't think it was a huge surprise to a lot of people in baseball. Just it was a surprise that he came forward for them, but not so much a surprise that he had used. Jumping back to the
0: statement in 2002 again, Um, because it speaks to, again, his lack of regret, his lack of remorse about it. From a financial standpoint, you get it. Uh, You know, the guy had, if somebody dangled a lottery ticket in front of your face, a winning lottery ticket in front of your face, you know, but there's like, you know, a a big moral quandary, you know, as a moat in front of you. I don't know that everyone jumps at it, but I know that people are going to consider it at least. I remember when Andy Pettit was named in the Mitchell Report. How remorseful he was over it, and and he really got uh, a pass, in my opinion, uh, on it. I mean, I think he's still somewhat tainted, but he got a pass in terms of well, he did it because he was injured, and you know, he was really yeah. trying. But they really, really stretched out the story, and people really were sympathetic to that. Is that required, or was that required at the time um, to to come up? Uh, to come out and, and apologize for the use and, and, you know, kind of bow your head. It
1: wasn't, you know, and there were a couple of players who did apologize. You know, Jason Giambi kind of apologized for vaguely, you know, for he, vaguely using. Press but time, conference, yes. I
0: remember it was him or somebody. It was like they gave him a press conference where they basically said everything but the word.
1: Yes. It was I was like, like apologizing was for everything, but not exactly yeah. saying what it's for. But yeah. everybody knew what it was for, yeah. you know. And and then you look at other players like McGuire, who you know came out in the Bob Costas interview, and you know was kind of expressing this suggestion that he didn't really know what it did for him, and you know I don't know how much has helped me. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did know how much it helped you because that's why you kept using it. I think that it's been meaningful to see a handful of players, not many, but a handful of players you know, talk about it, express remorse, whatever their feelings are. I think Pettit's was very heartfelt. Uh, I don't think it's required. I don't think it's necessary. I would love for some more of them to be truthful about it and being honest about it. Cause I don't think we've gotten a lot of that, but um, I do appreciate, you know, cause I think there are mixed feelings about it. And you had players back then who did try it for a week or two, try a couple of cycles and say, this isn't for me. And I think that's an important thing too, you know, um, it's not as clear cut as saying this guy's a cheater this guy's not a cheater you know i think a lot of a lot of players were tempted a lot of players were tempted from you know the fear of missing out from uh their teammates and friends doing these things and saying maybe i should too um you know it's it's a really tough thing and it it, it is it does mean something when players have come forward and talked about it openly you know i don't i don't know if we need the you know the The waterworks, the way that Andy Pennant did, but uh, it's just, it's meaningful to be able to talk about it, to hear about it, to hear honest perspectives about it. And we just haven't gotten a lot of that. So where we were
0: then to where we are now, uh, and again, the estimates range from however much percent, 25%, 85%, 50%, your numbers all over the place uh, to where it is now, where, like I said before, there's very few players that test positive a year. I couldn't even tell you how many, a handful every year, maybe. Yeah. Um, Five, six. There's no there's no conceivable way uh, that players are not that that those numbers aren't higher
1: and the players haven't found a way to beat the system. Right. No, exactly. I mean, and you hear about these infections that players get. Oh, I have a leg infection. Yeah. Maybe that's something else. Um, You know, but beyond that, um, there's no way if you have nine hundred or a thousand people who are fighting for jobs, fighting for million-dollar paychecks, fighting for fame, fighting for everything. There's no way that a good handful of them aren't using. You know, obviously, I don't think it's to the level that uh, we saw in the 90s and early 2000s, especially with the stat lines we're seeing today. Um, but at the same time, like the, the temptations are too big, and there's no way that players aren't using. You know, Obviously, the testing program, Um, has been effective in one level of, I think, scaring some players from using and cleaning up the game. But the drugs get smarter, the players get smarter. Like there's no way that steroid use isn't happening, even if it's not being caught.
0: Is it the testing program as a deterrent, do you think? Or is it that plus, I mean, I feel like we can say player nutrition and like mindfulness with regard to their bodies uh, is at a higher level right now. I feel like society is at a higher level. Uh, do you, do, is it is it that, or is it also players just not wanting to, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but is it also players just not wanting to run the risk of these things and seeing some of the side effects that have happened? I and being really to. on top of, you know, again, being really in control of what goes into it. That's why I'm always shocked when players are like, oh, I didn't know that I took a supplement. It's like, you guys <laughs> seem like you like measure every single, yes. like, tic-tac. So that, that's always the thing that surprises me the most
1: yeah you see you see um steroids today uh, you can find some that go through your body faster that aren't as detectable that don't stay in your system as long as some of the you know longer term steroids that you know were in vogue in the nineties and you know I think that's where the testing has changed or it hasn't been able to catch all those things i You're exactly right though that players are taking better of better care of themselves than they were back then uh I think teams are looking at players as more of an investment and protecting their investments better, Um, you know, giving them better food to eat, giving them better care, uh, making sure that there are people around them uh, more regularly to keep them on track. Uh, So I think there's a better system in place there. But um, I do think that the drugs that players are using and and I don't think it's as many, obviously, but I think some players are using drugs that will pass through their system faster and won't be as detectable, or they'll you know know that oh I'm only going to be tested two or three times, and now I just got tested the third time, and here's my you know here's my uh, opportunity. So I think that they're you know just staying smart about what they can do to uh, avoid detection.
0: Speaking of what players are putting into their bodies, so another uh, side of this story, uh, and obviously a very uh, the- the side of the story really uh is the the substance abuse uh with Caminiti that's another thing where I feel like we're not hearing as much about players with substance abuse issues as we did in the 80s and 90s specifically with all the panic around cocaine and 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 you know the reverberations and of course you had some baseball's brightest stars burn out early Doc Gooden and and Daryl Strawberry specifically um not that it doesn't happen still, obviously what happened out in L.A. with, with you know opioids and, and fentanyl and stuff like that. But what is it about what is it about that that just you feel like that's that's going to change too? Is it the same thing, just players being more like you know mindful of what they're putting in their bodies, or is it just we're not hearing about it?
1: I, I think that I think that players will take whatever they can to get through the day, um, and that, that's where I think the Tyler Skaggs thing hit so hard. And I think there's a lot of parallels with Ken just in the fact that players will do whatever it takes to, to get up, to get down, uh, to get back from injury. Um, You know, I think they are smarter on some levels. I do think as well, you look at Josh Hamilton and I think there's a lot of parallels between uh, some of the struggles that Ken faced and some of the struggles that Josh Hamilton faced during his career. And I think there was more accountability from teams. Um, You know, Ken didn't really get that. And it wasn't a knock against any of the people he was with. I just think the culture of baseball at that time in the clubhouse was that, you know, kind of everybody, you know, worried about themselves and, you know, there were you know, these ups and downs with the the rosters that he was with. So you had a, you know, a great player like Andy Stankiewicz around him to to help him and to watch him and to keep track of him, you know, but then, you know, he gets traded or the the roster turns over and the people who are protecting him aren't there anymore, you know, and then he's kind of off on his own. So I think that teams have gotten a lot smarter at identifying some of these issues and and being smarter about stepping in and recognizing that this is about more than just the game. This is about, you know, players' livelihood. Uh, This is about uh, their health, their well-being, that there's more important things going on. Uh, And that's been a nice push. But at the same time, I think that there's always going to be that pull for players. Uh, Again, with so much money, with so much opportunity on the line, I think there's always going to be this push for players uh, to do what it takes to keep playing, to push through it, Um, you know, to help themselves get through, to power through a day. And um, yeah, exactly. You know, Ken Ken was celebrated for that. He was celebrated for fighting through, you know, playing through the pain. And um, at the same time, you know, there were times when he shouldn't have been playing. You know, you look at the 98 World Series and he was falling apart. He was really, really struggling. You look at some of the times with the Astros, he was really struggling, but he was always ready to go at game time. And he was celebrated for that. But there were so many other things going on in his life. And, you know, it was really it's important that we recognize that and recognize that being a gamer isn't always the answer that, you know, sometimes it's important to be able to tap yourself out and go get help and go get cleaned up and, you know, get your life in order. And, uh, you know, he didn't have that uh, that mentality. His mentality was go, go, go and play every day.
0: Yeah. it's a. I mean, it's a thing that we're never going to shake. This this toxic masculinity, warrior mindset, gladiator mindset yep. thing. I saw when Josh Hader got traded to the Padres, like the derision. It's sort of like kind of out of the side of people's mouths. It's not really like, but it's like he only wants to pitch one inning. He's only going to do one inning appearances because he's going to be free agent in a year. And it's like, it, you just feel like, like people are kind of like, you know, looking down on that because it's somebody who's Mm -hmm. like, this is my body, this is my career and I I need to limit how much you're using me. So you're not running me out there for 40 pitches and then running me out there the next day for 20 pitches and and you're going to burn my arm out. But it was, it was a really interesting thing to see. And it's just like, again, the sporting press is interesting because they really do feed that. Would you agree that the sporting press really feeds? I mean, again, yeah, gamer mentality, even still, it's still one of those things where it's just like, if a guy limps back onto the field. He's a hero. If he sits out, uh, you know, he's kind of an injury riddled guy who's making a lot of money and he's hurting the team. It's a weird, weird, uh, weird dynamic.
1: It is a weird dynamic. You see players go on the IL and, you know, Giancarlo Stanton has been missing some games and, you know, other guys will, you know, miss games here and there. And, you know, it's this, this delicate thing and it's, Oh, you know, they're not ready to go, you know, or they, uh, you know, you, 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 see these teams and the 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 press try to like focus on players playing you know have to play every day, have to be available, have to be ready to go and uh you know it's it's like sacrilegious to to have somebody sit out unable to play you know you you remember like injuries that players sustained I think Sammy Sosa sat out a game because he sneezed too hard and hurt himself um you know it just it, those things kind of stand out, you know, of, of players, not ready to play, unable to play injured. Uh, uh, and then, you know, the, the Kirk Gibsons are celebrating. Obviously Kirk Gibson had a, a clutch moment and uh, Vince Scully gave such a great uh Mm-hmm. Call for that one. But, you know, you think about it and you're like, this guy could barely play. This guy was really hurt. Um, You know, obviously he hit a home run, but a lot of times it doesn't work out that way. And he didn't even play the rest of the series. So it, it just it's a tough balance. And that hero villain, uh, you know, somebody sitting out, uh, it's it, it's it's still looked down on. And again, we speak about like, you know, Cam
0: and he making the decisions he made, but players, other players using like an HGH or something to recover, or if they use a stereotype to, you know, again, it's not always just about, I'm going to, like you were, I think you said before, I'm not going to go out and hit 50 home runs. This is just, I need to stay competitive. I need to stay in the game. I need to keep doing this. So, the you know we talk about these players and we we kind of fetishize the idea of being a gamer and then again we get back to the end of the career thing and writers who've written written these same kinds of things and these stories about you know praising this warrior and then when it comes time to enshrine the warrior well he cheated he was no good he was a
1: fraud he was a cheater I I, I still laugh reading the Tom Verducci uh, glorifying Mark McGuire articles, you know, how great he is, how he does everything the right way. He's, you know, a saint, you know, he's, uh, you know, walking like old ladies across the street. Like this guy was the greatest thing in the world in 1997 and 1998. And then 20 years later, oh, this is about, you know, integrity it's like, what integrity do the writers have who glorify these guys forever and miss the biggest story of their careers? Like, that's a really damaging thing. Like, this story is happening for so many writers and they just look the other way and don't care. And it's like, that's the story. You missed it. You were glorifying these players and, you know, committing hero worship every day. And uh, it just, you know, the, 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 um, with McGuire's locker, with the Andrew in his locker, yeah, like, I mentioned, yeah. you know, at the time, the writer was vilified, you know, and and it was just it was just like pushed aside like, oh, it's no big deal. Like this guy had performance enhancing drugs and in, in plain view as he's breaking the home run record. And the reporter who wrote about it was vilified like it's ridiculous. The hypocrisy is just ridiculous.
0: That's the thing. It's like how much of this and, and this speaks to a a the thing that bothers me sometimes just in general, even with baseball culture now, but how much of that is uh, how much of the lack of reporting is a lack of information, and a, a lot of it is because you, you know there is there wasn't so much smoke there certainly wasn't fire. Yeah, uh, necessarily, but how much of it is just I don't want to ask this question because it's going to, I'm going to lose all my access I'm going to lose yes. my job. Exactly. Exactly, just, which is again another thing that's it's a morally gray it's a you, you kind of get it to a certain extent we all have mortgages to pay um you know it's you know the the idea of being a hero uh in in the context of journalism is one that's uh romanticized but in you if you're in that situation i'm not saying i don't know what i would do in that situation but to an extent again you get the human Uh, mathematics that would go through someone's head of do I really want to ask this guy how he gained 50 pounds of muscle mass in three months
1: yeah Yeah. is that that's part of it right Exactly. I mean, when you have these cozy relationships with the players and you spend so much time with them and you don't want to disappoint them and you don't want to ask those hard questions, you know, I think sometimes it's important for those reporters to be able to step back and say, okay, if I can't cover this, I need to give it to somebody else at my paper so we can get this coverage out, even if it's not me. Um, You know, And I think some reporters did those things, but not enough of them um you know i just think that it's that cozy relationship oh i'm friends with so and so you know i'm close with so and so but it's you know you're 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 blurring the line so much that you know you can't even look at it seriously anymore and you're exactly right i mean these players there were so many articles written about players beefing up players using uh you know, uh, creatine and other uh, supplements, over-the-counter supplements to help them. You know, when you go through the list and you're like, okay, Mark McGuire was interviewed in this article. Ken Caminiti was interviewed in this article. Brady Anderson was interviewed in this article. And you go down the list and you're like, okay, all these players now face suspicions of some kind uh, or admissions of some kind. You know, it's really, it's disingenuous to see so much of the reporting back then about, oh, this is great. These guys had muscle, you know, and even, How the muscle and the smaller ballparks and the expansion, baseball and the baseballs themselves, all these things were aiding in these home runs. And no one was really focusing on the only issue that really mattered. Uh, It was all about all the other things happening and, you know, buying this excuse of creatine, you know, which obviously some players did use creatine and I'm sure it helps some hit home runs, but it wasn't the big driving force
0: it's such an interesting it's like you wish you could have been a fly on the wall in some of these press boxes because the story was so good like you know it's just it's again you've got these two heroes you know duking it out it's mantle and maris all over again yeah. and it's in the shadow of you know this huge existential threat to baseball that the the strike in 94 was um it's almost like i don't necessarily think that people were like we got to keep this story going but you have to wonder like how much culpability there is in the media of just like nobody wants to push nobody wants to pull on the thread because this is really elevating the game which is rising tide lifts all ships
1: it was exactly i mean it was this idea of people were going to batting practice to watch Mark McGuire hit home runs, you know, chicks dig the long, like this was it. Like everybody was all about home runs. It was such an exciting time. You know, I think it was easy to look the other way when there was so much excitement and baseball was in, in front of the news and everybody was exci- happy. And, you know, all these home runs are happening. Like this was something people have never seen before. Like this was amazing, you know, and it was, it, it was, it was so exciting that you didn't want to ask questions. You didn't want to wonder, you know, you just want to sit back and watch and appreciate it. And, you know, we all did, you know, and then you start to ask later, like, huh, like <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't quite add up. But uh, at the time, I mean, at the time it was incredible. I, I, I remember, you know, watching, ESPN for the cut-ins of Sosa and Maguire's at bats, you know, and oh my gosh, Maguire's coming up. He has a one home run lead over Sosa. Is he gonna hit a home run? Is Sosa gonna tie him? Is Sosa gonna overtake him? Now they're playing against each other. Like it was such a great soap opera, it was such great drama. You know, it was just awesome watching it. Um, you know, it was it was so exciting at the time, you know, and 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 a shame now to look back and see that it wasn't what we thought it was.
0: It's one of those things where, and this completely spins back on, this is like the complete opposite of where I, I probably seemed like I was going before, but again, it's like a said, it's a nuanced issue. You sometimes think, ah, maybe I wish I didn't know. <laughs> like maybe, yeah. maybe preserving the magic wasn't the worst thing in the world, especially considering the way, you know, the world works now. Sometimes maybe a little, uh, a little magic. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. we know too, maybe we know too much, maybe we have too much
1: information. Is sort of thought. Exactly. I mean, I, sometimes I wish I could, you could put that genie back in the bottle and just appreciate it for baseball. You know, no one thinks about, say somebody wholesome, you know, people think of uh, Mickey Mantle very wholesomely. I think it was to his benefit that the media and the world he lived in was a very different place than the one that we experienced. I think of Tiger Woods this way too, you know, Tiger Woods was so much fun to watch and it was really disappointing to see his personal struggles and his downfalls, you know, and then to see him rise again and and to win some majors and have some success. And but it was never the same. You know, it was always like, oh, uh, you know, you always wish he was going to break all these records and do all these different things. And, uh, you know, it was just easier in that era of innocence to be able just to not think about this stuff and not think about, you know, who these guys are behind the scenes and what they're doing to their bodies and how they're you know bending the rules y- you know it was just easier to be able to just appreciate the baseball for what it was
0: moving away from from this uh tell me a little bit your your history of, of fandom uh, how you grew up you know when you first fell in love with baseball
1: So I grew up in the, I was born in 83. So I was nine, 10 years old in 1993, when I first really fell in love with baseball. Uh, Nolan Ryan's last season. And I started, I was reading a newspaper article about him and I thought he was interesting. And then I opened a pack of Upper Deck cards and got Nolan Ryan card. And that's when I was like, all right, this is my guy. And, uh, you know, Juan Gonzalez won the Home Run Derby that year. So that made me a Rangers fan for life, which has been, you know, a rocky road ever since. But, um, you know, my parents really instilled baseball, a love of baseball in me. Uh, my mom was a Reds fan. My dad was a Phillies fan. Uh, and that kind of just, you know, it was interesting getting those two, you know, fan perspectives. Uh, but I always felt like I had to have my own team. And, you know, all through the 90s, I was just so appreciative, excited to watch, you know, Center you know, baseball tonight, see those web gems, um, you know, go to some baseball games in Baltimore and Philadelphia and just appreciate baseball that way. And, you know, I just fell in love with the game, fell in love with those 1990s players, you know, was devastated by the strike. Uh, The Rangers were in first place, too. They're actually 10 games under five. Doesn't matter.
0: Doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) Doesn't matter. It was the Yankees year.
0: I'll I'll give you a pass if you're like an Expos fan. But apart from that, nobody agrees for 94. And
1: that Expos team was amazing. Uh, It was such a shame. You know, and then like 96, same thing. Like 96, the Rangers make the playoffs. Game one against the Yankees. Juan Gonzalez hits a home run. They win their first playoff game ever you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is the start of something. And obviously it wasn't, but because they didn't have a bullpen at the time, but, um, you know, it was really special, just kind of appreciating, uh, players from afar, getting autographs, uh, collecting baseball cards. And that's kind of my generation as a, a fan of, uh, baseball. Same deal, basically, uh, as far as getting into, it's funny, the
0: baseball card thing and how like, I had a cousin who gave me three garbage bags full of baseball cards and I pulled out a Don Mattingly. Uh, I think it was a KB or Kmart, like one of those cards. Yeah. yeah. And I was like this guy looks awesome. He's my guy. <laughs> uh, and then, and now I have a dog named Mattingly, uh, That's awesome. but I'm no longer a Yankees fan. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but um, it's, it's funny how baseball cards serve as I, even to this day, I still like in picture players uh, and names pop through my head constantly. Oh, yeah. uh of players from that era. I mean, like we could go we could go on and on about nineties. Uh like when you mentioned Rick Helling, I was like, well, that's a name I haven't heard in yeah. a long time. And it's like, yeah, we could go like Darren Oliver and like, you know, again, back and forth The, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, <laughs> it really is something. Those Rangers teams were good though. I mean they they had a, a you know stepping aside uh the the little helpers that might have been involved there. Uh just so much power on those teams just from so much.
1: God, Juan yeah. GON and,
0: and Ivan Rodriguez and even like some of the lesser guys from the early night, like Kevin Reimer,
1: I remember being. Kevin Reimer was in the mix there. Rusty Greer was underrated, you know, great uh, middle of the lineup kind of guy. Dean Palmer was another one.
0: Palmer, yeah. Right after it was Steve Buschel was there before him, right? Yes. Yeah. Steve Buschel, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. It's good. Again, just just reading off the names. Sometimes I'll buy like old uh, like boxes of like, it's completely worthless at this point, like old boxes like score. Yeah. Or Don Ross, just to go through and just feel the, the nostalgia pangs. You know, it's nice.
1: Oh, yeah. It's the
0: best, isn't it? It is. Do you feel like you've had to set your fandom aside as you've, you've written about baseball more?
1: Uh, sometimes. You know, I, it was interesting with my book on Ken diving into the 2001 Rangers that actually my fandom actually helped in that case because I was so knowledgeable about how bad that team was. And, you know, going through the, the roster and being like, all right, let's go call Bo Porter because he was now failed on that team. Let's track down Gabe Kapler because he was now failure on that team, um, you know, and, and recognizing the just the ridiculousness of the roster that was put together and saying, OK, we have Andres Galarraga, Ken Kameny, Alex Rodriguez, Rafael Palmeira, Pudge Rodriguez, and no pitching whatsoever. It was it was such a disgrace. It was such a joke because they went into the season thinking we're going to win the World Series. And within a month, they're like 10 games under 500. Uh, They're 10 games back in the in the AL West. The Mariners end up winning a ton of games that year. Like it was just a, a complete disaster. And one of the best stories I heard was from the spring training coordinator of the Rangers who was overseeing. A-Rod's initial press conference there. And he was talking about how he had to rent speakers at a at a karaoke store. And uh, he was worried that the speakers were gonna blow when they did the press conference because they just didn't have the resources at their spring training facility to have the media there uh, for A Rod. And uh, you know, it was just that kind of thing. But I, I definitely did have to put my fandom aside at times because you know it's you know, you're calling these people who you were getting autographs of, you know. 15, 20 years earlier, and then asking them really tough questions, you know, interviewing Greg Vaughn, uh, somebody I got an autograph of, was an interesting experience. It was a great interview, but it, it's always like, it's tough to balance that. You know, I interviewed Doug Glanville, same thing. He was great, too. I didn't actually use any quotes of his from the book, but he was awesome. You know, there were so many people who I, ex- I encountered as a fan. You know, I, um, I got Gabe Kapler's autograph uh, before a Rockies game. And I sent him a letter in the mail and got an autograph on a drawing I made of him, you know, and then I'm interviewing him all these years later, you know, and he's kind of pushing back on my questions and correcting me. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll give you a pass on this. Um, But it's, it's a tough balance, you know, and you kind of have to pull back from your childhood and pull back from all these things you feel and say, okay, well, now I'm just asking questions. You know, now I'm just some some interviewer you know it's a different it's a different approach it's a different feeling
0: i don't know if it's a quote a thing that i do with with the podcast but i do seem to gravitate towards this uh because it's a nice cross section for me but i'm curious about your favorite uh, your favorite baseball movie as, as we wrap here
1: yeah i think bull durham's up there you know that one just is so authentic i think major leagues up there as well we grew up in that golden era, which I, I know I don't
0: understand why that golden era exists. I, I guess you can blame Bull Durham and Feel the Dreams for all of these 90 and Major League for yeah. all of these kind of let's let's hook the kids on baseball and it's the Sandlot and it's Major League and it's yeah. or, me, Little Big League, which I weirdly just rewatched a couple of months ago just to see uh if it holds
1: up. It's how how did it? <laughs> it's
0: it's a it's a cute film, it's charming. Uh, and the 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 ball players like I know uh, from Thirty Something, uh, yeah. Uh, he he played like semi-pro ball, uh, wow. and I know, like I know like he. So when he's swinging, it's like yeah, that's he looks right. And I know Kevin Elster was in that movie, yeah, uh, playing the shortstop. Well, I think still active actually. You know, so the ball, the the play, the the actual baseball is great. Uh, the acting—it's just—it's a, a silly concept, but uh, yeah, the baseball really holds up. Um, what's your thought on the Sandlot? Because I've never really felt anything for that movie, and I feel like I'm the only one in my generation who can say that. It's
1: okay, you know. I think it was a lot of buildup and a lot of hype, and it's obviously had so much, so much momentum now. Like, there's so much attention about it, and people talk about it, and you know, the the actors from the movie do a lot of autograph signings, which is cool. I I, I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't hold the same weight to me as some of the other movies like bull durham or major league
0: it wasn't fun it was again it's i know it's like a, again it's it's not a, a a serious movie but i don't know it just didn't feel as goofy uh as, as some of the. it almost feels like the field of dreams like the line runs from field of dreams to that i
1: could see that you know and it's like yeah i it just it's a step too far at times you know it's like the ghosts appear in his dream and there's yeah. the dog thing, you know, and then there's the ending where the guy steals home plate and you're like, eh, you know, that wasn't that exciting. Uh, <laughs> it's just like eh, it was OK. I mean, it's an OK movie. I, I'm not knocking it, but it doesn't it's not as great a baseball movie as some of the other movies that came out around that time. All right. Good stuff. I want to thank
0: Dan. Good for popping by the podcast. Great conversation about steroids and Ken Caminiti's life. His book again is playing through the pain. Ken Caminiti and the steroids confession that changed baseball forever. You can pick it up on Amazon. You can pick it up wherever you buy your books. You can follow Dan on Twitter at D good 73. Uh, and again, I want to thank him for popping by the show. One last thing before we close up again, we did not get a chance to talk about the Fernando Tatis PD suspension. Uh, it's interesting because all this stuff sort of touches on uh, San Diego because uh, Caminiti, of course, is a Padres icon. Tatis is well on his way to being one. He's got a huge contract to live up to. He's got a pissed-off general manager right now. He's got a team that I think everyone thought they were heading on a rocket ship to the World Series. They went out and got Juan Soto and Josh Bell and Josh Hager. And, you know, some of those things aren't working out exactly as they hoped. But I think the thought was when Tatis was coming back from this wrist injury that he sustained from a motorcycle accident earlier this season that they were going to be ready to roll. And that's not going to happen. He's going to miss the rest of this season and, you know, an 80 game suspension and you know his career is going to be forever tainted i was watching a rod on the uh the k rod cast uh was a couple weeks ago whatever it was and he was talking about uh the impact of of what it's going to have on Tatis's reputation and and no one would know better than alex rodriguez because and as he made the same point uh he's never going to make it to the hall of fame because of what he did because of his positive pv test and his history with it so it's interesting but one thing that came up when the Tatis failed test was announced was people saying Tatis is the most prominent player since A-Rod and people forget Robbie Cano and that's two PD suspensions that Cano has endured. And now we're watching sort of the end of his career and it's a legendary career, but it's not going to go where it probably should have gone, but it's, it's an interesting thing. Cause he is, or he had been still holding on. He'd been released by the Mets. He'd been released by the Padres or he played for a little bit. And he just got released by the Braves. <laughs> And it's just interesting because this is not a guy who needs the money. He He's still getting paid by the match for the last two seasons of a mega deal. He signed with the Mariners. He doesn't need the glory. He's an eight-time All-Star who will finish with, with more than 330 home runs, 1,200 RBIs, 2,600 hits. Again, those numbers all could have been higher. This ending could have not been the ending that he's getting right now. Um, he could have been chasing that 3,000th hit. But, uh, you know, we could have seen the same flowery setup that we're seeing with Albert Pujols and, and seeing Cano at the All-Star Game or in the Home Run Derby. He's that kind of talent. He's a hall of famer and a hero to countless players throughout the sport. But here we are. Cano is playing out the string or had been playing out the string, trying to hang on as long as possible because who wants to be a former baseball player? Who wants to sit in the stands and not play the game when they've had the ability to play the game at such a high level? There's that moment in Field of Dreams, and I rewatched it like everybody did when they did the Field of Dreams game. There's that moment when Moonlight Graham realizes he has to go back to the real world to be a grown-up doctor instead of a wonder kid ball player. And he, he steps off that field and he ages just instantly. Tell me that's not a reflection of the moment when players like Cano stop playing. Tell me he doesn't feel that on some level, that when he steps off that field for the final time, he's going to be instantly an old man. It's got to be really, really uh, difficult uh, to accept that nearing 40, uh, it's a swing that has slowed down by the weight of years and fading physical skills. It's not as beautiful as it was when he premiered with the Yankees, what was it, 15, 16, 17 years ago? The results aren't pretty either, and 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 but the sight of that swing is the thing. And I remember watching him in spring training, and I remember watching him in the early season, and you just kept wanting to believe because that swing, it fools you for a second. It's it's such a beautiful thing. Who would root for the destruction of that? It's like rooting for the Sistine Chapel to crumble because it has a few cracks. But we may have, and we likely have, seen that swing in the major league ballpark for the last time, and it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing that Robinson Cano's career ended like that. It's a sad thing anybody's career has to. And like that, it's a sad thing that uh, he'll be remembered not for that swing, but for you know, two failed B.D. tests. Uh, and you know, that's probably the ultimate legacy of of steroids in baseball. Anyway, that's another episode in the books. I want to thank Dan Good for stopping by to talk about Ken Caminiti, his legacy, baseball steroid era, and so much more. Again, do look for his book; it is a great read. Uh, please do also give him a follow on social. There'll be links again in the show notes. Uh, we'll be back with another episode coming up soon. I promise. And uh, that's it. No more show. Bye.